0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles now to the book of 2 Corinthians. And today our scripture reading will be chapter three, verse 18 through chapter four and verse six. This message is part of a series of messages on biblical foundations for change. And what we mean by foundations are things that must be in place for the superstructure of the Christian life to be lived. And one of the things we're going to learn today is that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. With that said, hear now the word of the Lord as we read it beginning in verse 18 of chapter 3. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word, but by For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we pray. That by word and spirit and through the preaching of the word enabled and empowered by the spirit and the hearing of the word enabled by the illumination of the spirit that we would learn what it means to behold your glory and to be changed by beholding your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we change? Well, Paul says we're changed with an open face, all of us, he includes everyone, by beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so we want to talk about that today and my goal is that you'll understand exactly what the apostle Paul means when he speaks of these issues. And so the interesting thing about 2 Corinthians 3:18 is this is the last verse in chapter 3, which means everything that has come before it, verse 18 is summarizing. And so I just want to give you a little bit of the context to be sure that we are being faithful to what the text actually says. And so, this verse comes at the close of a chapter in which the Apostle Paul is contrasting the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit with the old covenant ministry of the law through Moses. First, he compares the old covenant adversely with the new. The former ministry, the old covenant, was marked by death, that's verse 7, and condemnation, verse 9. Whereas the latter, new covenant, was marked by the Spirit, verse 8, and righteousness, verse 9. And so Paul's negative assessment says since they neither observed the law God gave them nor had any assurance of forgiveness when they broke them, the commandments became not the source of life as originally intended, but a harsh letter which condemned them and destroyed their fellowship with God. The new covenant, however, has exactly the opposite effect. If the ministry of the old letter kills, the ministry of the Spirit gives life. If the old covenant, which results in condemnation, the new issues in righteousness, which since it is the opposite of condemnation, must mean acquittal. This meaning is confirmed in a later passage where Paul associates the righteousness of God with God, not counting men's sins against them. The twin blessings of righteousness and the Holy Spirit are new covenant realities. We are justified, that is, declared righteous by faith and we receive the Holy Spirit by believing what we have heard. So what does it mean to behold the glory. Now, in the outline, in the bulletin, I have some questions that are going to kind of uh, surround what we're going to be thinking about today, and so I want to give you those questions again. Number one, what is the sweetest, highest, best, and final good of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Number two, what obstacle prevents you from totally enjoying that? Number three, what has to happen in order for that obstacle to be removed? And number four, which I don't have here, but I will mention briefly at the end, is there anything we can do to help others escape that obstacle? And so the sweetest, best good news we will ever hear is what the New Testament writers call the gospel, the euangelion, good news. But what is the sweetest, highest, and best, and final good of the good news? Some people would say it's justification by faith. So I'm gonna give you a list of things that we could say are sweet benefits of the gospel. Number one, um uh, is the sweetest best highest and final good of the gospel justification by faith that's a wonderful benefit that Christ has won for us or is it the forgiveness of sins or is it the removal of the wrath of god wonderful thing is it redemption from guilt is it liberation from slavery to sin Is it salvation from hell? Is it entrance into heaven? Is it eternal life? Is it deliverance from pain and sickness and conflict and oppression in this world? Is the new heavens and the new earth that we will enjoy forever? Are those the highest, finest, best, good of the gospel? And the answer is no, they are not. What is the highest? and best these things are of infinite value these are things we would all die for these are the most precious things in our life almost they are gospel gifts they're what jesus died to purchase for us and i'm asking are they the highest sweetest best final gift of the gospel is that what he died to procure for us finally and ultimately? And my answer is, no, it's not. The answer, I think, given in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 6, are the following as we read them. Uh, first, let me read them again. Verse 18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image uh, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Then look down at chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of what? The glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? Look down at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if this is going to hit you nearly as hard as I wanted to hit, as it hit me, but I hope it does. When you look at these phrases and you compare them and you pile them up, They shed light, amazing light, on each other. So the light in verse 4 corresponds to the light in verse 6 of the gospel in verse 4 corresponds to the knowledge in verse 6 of the glory of Christ and in verse 4 corresponds to the glory of God in verse 6. Who is the image of God corresponds to in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, here is what I have seen spending all week with this text. This is what I have seen. The gospel of the glory of Christ is what we see. So, if you ask me what is the good news, I would say it is the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate, greatest summum bonum, the ultimate... Not the penultimate, but the ultimate good of the gospel is to be able to see what? The glory of Jesus Christ. And that vision of the glory of Jesus Christ is what changes us. That's what changes us. The Spirit illuminates the mind's uh, eye of the heart, so to speak, and enables us metaphorically to see the glory of Christ. And by that vision, when we see that, it transforms us. So think about that with me for a moment this morning. We have a gospel of glory. And so the glory of Jesus Christ... Is the point, so to speak, of the gospel. And if you're stumbling over the word glory, just think of how we use it in other contexts. For example, like sports. In, in Hebrew, the word for glory is kabod, kabod, and kabod means something that is heavy or weighty or substantial, that stands out as being unique. In the New Testament, the word for glory is the Greek word doxa, like doxology. Doxa. And doxa, again, means the same thing something that is beautiful, something that is splendid, something that is majestic, something that is earth shaking, something that fills us with awe. It's awful. <laughs> but A-W-E-F-U-L, something that fills us full of awe. And so the Apostle Paul is telling us one of the ways we experience change is some way or the other by seeing, by having the veil over our heart lifted so that we can see the glory of the Lord in the face, in the human face of Jesus Christ. Because we all know that Jesus is the God-man. He is 100% God, and he's 100% man. And so he is the ultimate, according to Scripture, the image of God. Hebrews 1 tells us that. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that. Uh, John chapter 1 says, when we beheld him, we beheld the glory of the only begotten, full of what? Grace and truth. He is filled with glory. Glory. And so there's something about seeing the glory, again, that changes us. And when we behold it, you know, behold is more than a passing glance. To behold something is to be captured by it. It is to be arrested, as it were, by it. It's like seeing a beautiful work of art. For me, as a teenager, it was watching Michael Jordan play basketball. I know a lot of you think James, what's his name, LeBron, LeBron is the greatest basketball player that ever lived. He may be. But when I was keeping up with it, (laughs) Michael Jordan, the way he could soar through the air, that was awe-inspiring. There was glory there, and it moved me. Or Tiger Woods playing golf. Now, he's not that way anymore because he's old and his body's wearing out, and his mind is not as focused, but when that guy had a switch he could turn on, and he could play golf, and I watched him play golf, I was awed. Even Jack Nicholas, who's the greatest probably of all time, said, he plays another kind of game than I do. This guy is amazing, or you hear someone sing the national anthem like Carnell uh, before the hockey game, you're moved by that or you hear a beautiful piece of music and it draws you in or you go out in nature and you see a beautiful sunset or you see snow on the mountains and you're captured by the the beauty of that moment those things are all glorious but here's what a Christian sees he sees the glory of Jesus he sees the beauty of The suitability of Jesus for myself, the attractiveness of Jesus, and we are drawn to him. And as we look into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we persevere. We are changed. We are changed. We are changed. We are metamorpho. That's the word changed. There is a metamorphosis that happens that transforms us inside and out. And so, this is what we're going to talk about today, the glory. I could stop right there because that's enough for you and me to think about forever. But what I see, the content of the gospel, Paul says here, is the glory of Christ. Glory is beauty, it's wonder, it's all. You know what it is in your heart, and we all long for it. I mean, we all want glory. We do. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing in that we will share his glory when we see him, the scripture says in 1 John, when we see him fully as he is, we will become what? Like him. That is when we die. And Paul says absence from the body is presence with the Lord. Uh, Paul says for to me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. Why is it gain? Because he will see the glory and the glory will transform him. Is Jesus beautiful to you? Because if he's not, something or someone else is. Because we hunger for glory. We want it. We were built for glory. We were made in the image of God. The imago dei, the great theological topic of how we were created to image God in this world. We are stamped with the divine image. But that image was marred and defaced and almost destroyed during the fall. But everyone in the world still retains remnants of the image of God. That's why people who are blind and don't see the beauty and glory of Jesus can still do great things and beneficial things. Sometimes I'm moved by the music of an absolute pagan. Why? Because he still retains remnants of the image of God. And they can produce stuff that is valuable to us. People aren't worthless. They have worth because they're stamped with the image of God, marred though it might be. But when we're converted, when we see the glory, we turn to the Lord. He places his spirit in us. He gives us a new nature. Then our lifelong goal is to see the image of God renewed. Uh, Gospel reconstruction is occurring all the time in our lives. And so there has to be this process. But one of the elements, not the only element, but one of the elements is seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, where do we see that? Or how do we see that? Well, we see that when we learn how to see the beauty of Christ And the magnificence of Christ. And here's the way I do it, and here's the way I would suggest you would do it. When you're dealing with the glory here, the one divine magnificent glory streaming out of the radiance of the beauty of God in the events called the gospel, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is filled with glory. God condescends to leave the glory of heaven, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus comes to earth to become one of us. There is such beauty in that stooping and in that condescension. Why would he do that? Why would he come, C.S. Lewis equivocated it, and this is limited but valuable, this always got me. He said, Jesus becoming a man is like you becoming a roach. Or worse, a roach, a maggot. That's what Jesus came to this world to do. Is there glory in that? The author of the Gospel of John thought there was. He said the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament dwelt in the tabernacle. The Shekinah glory of God in the Old Covenant dwelt in the temple, but it departed from the temple. The Shekinah glory of God we now see in the person of Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And so there's glory in the incarnation. There's glory in the life of Christ. Read the Gospels. Read the four Gospels, and you will see such beauty, such glory in the person of Jesus Christ, such compassion, such mercy, such boldness, such truth. And you're struck again and again by the glory of this man. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration, huh? You remember that? Peter, James, and John, sort of the inner circle, go with Jesus upon the mountain, And it for a moment, for just a moment, uh, the Bible tells us that Elijah was there. It tells us that uh, Moses was there. Moses was, of course, the glory of the old covenant. Elijah was a prophet preaching regarding the glory to come. And there standing between them is the glory of God in human flesh. And the moment God lifted the veil briefly for just a moment, the witnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration said, the light was overpowered. There was such glory and beauty in the Lord Jesus Christ upon the Mount of Transfiguration. There's glory in the crucifixion. We sing a song around here. I think we sang it last week. Did we? The beautiful, wonderful cross. Isn't the cross one of the most ugly things that ever happened in the universe? Wasn't his figure marred? He was disfigured where you couldn't even tell if he was man. Wasn't he suspended between heaven and earth on a Roman cross with nails in his hands and his feet? Wasn't his beard plucked out? Didn't he wear a thorn of crowns? Where is the glory and the beauty in that? When you understand who it is hanging there and you understand what he came to do for you, there's beauty in that that is overpowering, that melts the hardest heart. It melts your heart. And if it doesn't, you can't see it. Your mind, your heart is veiled. There's a veil over you. You can't see the beauty in it. And so when we talk about the beautiful, wonderful cross, I mean, you're a nice, polite person, but you're saying, what, are are these people out of their minds? No, because we see something. We see someone that maybe you don't see. And we sure want you to see it. Because if you ever see it, you'll never be the same. There is glory in the cross. There, the wisdom of God is manifest. There, the wrath of God is manifest. There, the love of God is manifest. There, the mercy of God is manifest. It's all shining brightly upon that cross. But he was buried and the resurrection shows what? His glory. He triumphed over death. He took our sins down into death. He paid for them. He triumphed over them. We were justified, Paul says, because he is risen. He's alive. He is forever in his glorified body, still with the marks of the nails in his hands. But there's beauty in that. And when you see that, you can never be the same, because you understand that what he did, I died with him. When he was buried, I was buried with him, because I'm in union with him by faith. When he resurrected, I resurrected with him. When he ascended to heaven, one day I'll ascend to heaven with him. If I die before he comes back, when he comes back, I'm coming back with him. I am heirs of his glory. I'm one of those guys that will change you because that's what the gospel is the gospel is though we are more messed up broken and sinful and wrong just wrong in every way sin taints all of our existence though we are more than that than we ever could possibly imagine or fathom we are more loved and more forgiven And more righteous and more cared for Than we could ever dare hope And week after week As we gather as God's people Day after day as we pour over His word and the Holy Spirit Shows us the reality of His word We are being Changed Now Let me tell you what I did when I first Became a Christian I mean I was an athlete I was a ball player So how do you get good at athletics You work out right you lift weights, you run, you train, you suck it up. You do everything in your power to grow. You go to classes. You listen to your coaches. You change your diet. Why? Because you're trying to change into this what? This Adonis. Now, I never quite made it. I got close. No, I didn't. But that's what I was looking to be, an Adonis that could play football and knock somebody's head off and tell them Jesus loves you after I did it. But anyway, that's what I wanted to do. But that's not how you change as a Christian. See, many of us say, well, I've got to be more disciplined. I've got to have discipline in my life. I don't know anybody that's spiritually disciplined. The only spiritually disciplined person I ever knew is Jesus. All the rest of us, it's a joke. We're not disciplined. Paul says he even beat his body in First Corinthians to try to keep it himself. He ran uh, with a purpose like a, a, a runner who trains to run marathons. But I remember thinking, okay, here's what's happened. My life was a mess. Jesus died for me. He forgave me. My sins are all gone. Now he hands me the coaching manual, the rule book, the Bible and my job is to read it and do what it says. You know what I left out? (laughs) The glory of Jesus. I didn't realize how much I needed Jesus every day, every day, every day. See, most of us don't want to live at the constant mercy of Jesus. We would rather do okay on our own. And so holiness, as, as I was taught it, and as I wrongly understood it, was this. Holiness was becoming more and more independent of Jesus and depending more and more on myself because I had grown, I had matured, and therefore I was making it. But that's wrong The more you grow, the more you see you need Jesus. The more you see the glory of Christ, the more you want to depend upon him. The more you see the glory of Jesus, the more you see your own weakness. And see, that's the glory of the gospel is it it breaks us down. Luther put it this way, the gospel kills me in order to make me alive. The gospel kills me in order to make me alive it shows me stuff that I don't want to see that I don't want to be that I deny that is there often I have this wrestling match with with the Lord uh, and I lose every time I'm like Jacob struggling with the Lord and wrestling with the angel and uh, you know God finally grabs him the the angel the theophany (laughs) grabs him by his leg uh, and and uh, injures him But he lets him win. But the glory of the gospel is seeing that beauty. And that is precisely what Paul is talking about in chapter 3, verse 18. He's talking about under the old covenant, faces were veiled. They couldn't behold the glory of the God. Even Moses, when he went up to get the law, had to wear a veil over his face so that they couldn't see the glory, number one. And number two, so they couldn't see the glory fading. But the glory now remains because we see it in its source, the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit's primary role in changing you is to take a spotlight and shine it as it were upon the face of Jesus Christ. People are always talking about, I remember when the movement of the Holy Spirit was like one of the big things, and people were asking me if I had the Holy Spirit, and if I had spoken in other tongues, and all kinds of stuff like that. And there seemed to be a fascination with and a focus upon the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as part of the economic trinity, His primary calling is to birth us, is to take the Word, And cause us to be born from above to change our nature so that we see the glory of Christ we repent of our sins we trust in him and the Spirit's role in our sanctification is to continue to what show us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that is his continuing role and so, everything in the gospel is to point us to the highest, sweetest, final, and best good. Everything in the gospel is for that. There isn't anything after uh, that. Once we arrive at seeing and enjoying and adoring and treasuring and being wrapped up in, the, being transformed by that glory, we're on the right track we're on the right track what is the finest and sweetest and highest good of the gospel it is the glory of jesus christ and so what stands in the way of people seeing that what stands in the way of our enjoyment of the sweetest and the best and the finest and the ultimate good of seeing the glory of Jesus. If you have been born again or born from above, if you're a Christian, I assume that you have at least tasted and know what I'm talking about up here. You don't think I'm absolutely out of my mind. Because otherwise, if you don't see any of this, I would wonder seriously whether you're a Christian. To be a Christian is to embrace and receive the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. So what stands in the way? There's something, it's veiled from us. Notice in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from what? Seeing the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The reason why some of us may not be enjoying the beauty of Christ is that you're blind to it because Satan is conspiring with your unbelief. He's blinding you. And you don't even believe in him. You don't even know who he is. And yet, he is blinding you. He's blinding you. And you can't see it. And you can't understand it and so uh, most of you know and I've told this story more than one time that I have an older brother oh he's in heaven now but my older brother went blind totally at age 22 he had lost one eye at age nine he lost the other one at age 22 totally blind couldn't even see lighter darkness I asked him what it was like he said it's gray And so one time in his life, right after he went blind, he was sent to go to the school for the blind, Arkansas School for the Blind in Little Rock, Arkansas, and he went and attended that school. And he said to me, I remember when he got back, he says, you think there's nothing worse than being blind? He said, but get it, I've seen before. When somebody says that's a red shoe, I can picture that in my head. When somebody says, you got on black socks, I can picture that, because I understand that. He said, but somebody blind from birth, what's red? I guess you have to say it's like heat. I don't know. How do you communicate that when you don't see it? And to be blind means you can't picture it. You don't see the beauty of it. You don't see the glory of it. You don't see a sunset. All of those things. So what's standing in the way from us is we've been blinded. So when the gospel is spoken to us by a family member or a friend over pizza or by some pastor at the church or by a friend, when the work of Christ is spoken to you, it doesn't thrill your soul and you don't see the glory in it. It is boring to you. Now I went to church as a kid and bored wouldn't even come close to what I experienced <laughs> every Sunday. We had bricks in the wall. I counted every brick in that church building. And I multiplied the numbers in my head. I would do anything but listen. So I have no idea what the man preached. Because I didn't see any beauty in it. To me, I just thought, well, you know, this is where nice people come to become nicer. You know, <laughs> that's what church is. Okay, I'm nice enough. You know, I don't, I don't need to work that hard at it bored. Bored. Just absolutely stone cold. Bored. Because I couldn't see. I couldn't see. I was as blind as my brother was physically. But you're looking and there's a veil and you don't see anything. And we all know people like this. It's terrifying, especially if they're in your family. You, you have sat with your children, you have sat uh, even maybe with your parents and you've tried to describe Jesus Christ to them as compelling and beautiful and glorious and everything a human being could ever want in eternity and in this world and you get the blankest looks on their faces back at you. It means nothing to them and it's terrifying to your soul in that moment. Don't scoff at those people. Don't scoff at those people. You were one. Weep and plead for their soul. Now, what's wrong is there's a blindness to glory. To be lost, to be perishing, is to be blind to His glory. And we are dealing with people who are just blind to the glory. They can see glory in football, they can see echoes of glory in the stars or soccer, or hockey, or whatever your thing is. They see echoes of glory in their children in certain moments. They see echoes of glory in art, echoes of glory all over. But when you present to them the greatest glory, their eyes glaze over. There's a haze. Nothing, nothing. No sweetness, no beauty, no love, no joy, no treasuring, no deep satisfaction, no shalom, blank or worse. Now, if you're a Christian, what in the world has happened to you? Well, look down at verse 6. Here's what's happened. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying here? He is comparing becoming a Christian to God's creation of light at the beginning of creation. The Gospels on the first verses of the Bible. In the beginning was God, and God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And God said, what? Let there be light, and the lights came on. And then he ordered this beautiful creation in the six days of creation, and the ultimate creative act of God is forming man and Woman in his own image. The man and the woman together are the image of God. But God spoke to the Tohu Vabohu. Little Hebrew there for you. Tohu Vabohu. What does that mean? Empty, void, dark, nothing. Nothing. And God, by his word, spoke and light came. And then the glory of God is displayed throughout, the firmament uh, firmament above, the earth beneath, the ocean waters, all of those things is how the Bible says God made everything. And the same thing happens when you become a Christian. God shines the light of his glory into our hearts, into the chaos and darkness and void, and blankness, and waste of our hearts, God shines his light. (laughs) The very power that created something out of nothing is the same power, Jesus tells us, that shines in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's a miracle. You know, I'm thinking about churches I see on television, and we received Riley this morning as a communicant member, and Riley gives good testimony that he's seen the light, Um, and and that's a beautiful testimony, but there's some churches you go to where they have healing services, and they all start screaming miracles, and my hope is, Maybe God in his mercy has given a miracle, but often it's fake, and you know it's fake, and they know it's fake, but they're doing it, and everybody goes home. What do they talk about? Do they talk about this young man who has received Christ? That's the greatest miracle in the history of the universe. That is the greatest miracle. You say, I don't believe in miracles. If you know Jesus, you are a walking miracle. You are. You are. Now, (laughs) y'all need to listen faster. You remember the Apostle Paul when his name was Saul and he was on the road to Damascus? What was he going to Damascus to do? Kill everybody who had seen the light. (laughs) He was persecuting the church. He was ordering and maybe involved in the killing of Stephen. He was standing there. We know that. He was implicated. Whether he actually threw big rocks at anybody, we don't know. But he's persecuting the church. How does Saul, the persecutor, become Paul, the man who wrote what we've been reading? God, who spoke to the darkness of the emptiness of the void at creation, spoke to the darkness and emptiness of the heart of the apostle Paul. And the one he persecuted, he saw with his physical eyes on the Damascus road what he saw literally we see metaphorically but he saw it and he was blinded for how many days and then God sent a guy to come and baptize him and straighten him up and the guy says you know who that is do you know who you're telling me to go help are you sending me into the fire to get killed but God says he knows you're coming He already showed him you're coming go and do it and he did But that is the picture. Let there be light, let there be light, let there be light. And you don't have to have a big emotional dramatic experience. Your experience could have been a still small voice. But you knew something was different. Something had changed. There was light. And God had spoken the light into your uh, uh, life. And you have your eyes opened. Finally, in closing... So much more to say. If God is completely sovereign in who he does that to, then what do we do? Sit around and smoke cigars outside? You know, or I had a next-door neighbor who was a hard-shell Baptist, and that meant that he was sort of a, a fatalist. He was sort of a case a whatever will be, will be. Why are you going out sharing the gospel with people? Because you're just wasting your time this man told me. He says, you don't need to be doing that. You don't even need to be preaching. If God's going to save them, he'll save them. All you're doing is getting in the way. What a guy to grow up next door to, huh? <laughs> you're talking about pouring ice water on my zeal to share my faith. Well, he was half right. It is God who saves, but how does he do it? Through people like you and me. That's how he does it. We have this treasure, this glory in earthen vessels, the next verse says, verse 7. And when not only do we see his glory, but his glory is seen through us. As we share the simple message of the gospel to others, light goes forth. That's why Jesus said, "I am the light of the world." That's why He said in the Sermon on the Mount, "You are the light. You are the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to other people. When was the last time you sat down with anybody and you shared the gospel with them? And of course everybody goes, I don't, you know, I don't know how I don't." Are you blind and now you see? You can at least tell them that. Can you tell them how sweet Jesus is to you? You can at least tell them that. That is precisely what God calls us to do. Paul says, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, We are your servants um, for Jesus' sake. And so nobody anywhere in the world has their heart opened in a saving way without usually some human being presenting the gospel either in a tract or on the internet or in person. As you sow the seed, God turns the lights on. Some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. But he doesn't do it apart from us. The only reason I stand up and preach and share my heart with you every week is because I know God's going to turn on the light for somebody. And somebody is going to want to see the beauty and glory of Christ. And, and I get to, you know, sometimes I just, I'm overwhelmed. I get paid to spend my whole week searching for that, which is the most satisfied thing in the world, the glory of Jesus to come tell you about it. For years, I didn't want to be a preacher growing up as a kid. That was a death sentence to me. I said, no, I will never do that. I've eaten that with a lot of other words. But in Acts chapter 26, and I close with this. The situation is Paul is on the Damascus road. Jesus has appeared to him. Glory has knocked him off the horse. He's blinded him. All kinds of stuff going on here. He wonders, what does all this mean? What am I supposed to do? Jesus gives him a commission, and it is an amazing commission. It is an impossible commission. It's crazy. He says this to Saul, who became Paul. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to the God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I find it to be an amazing correlation that he would mention they need light and they need freedom from Satan and God says to make it happen I'm sure Paul would have said I can't make that happen no way I can do that I can't make that happen only God says let there be light only God is stronger than the devil what do you mean you're sending me to open their eyes what Jesus means is you go you open your mouth you declare the lordship of Christ the truth of the gospel you plead you pray with people and I God says will come with thunderbolts through your life and raise the dead I will give light to the blind I'll lift the veil and I'll do it through you have you seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and if you have you know there's nothing that can compare I applied this to myself this week by looking at the idols of my heart, things I really want more than Jesus sometimes. And I looked at them and I said, "Why, why would I desire to feast upon that when I can have him? Such an idiot. I said to myself, I'm not saying you are. Such an idiot. Do you see his glory? Do you share his glory with others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and is able to divide between soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We pray that you've laid us bare today in order to heal us. You've shown us our darkness in order to bring us into the light. And I pray today that people who hear the wonderful good news of Jesus will have their eyes open to behold that glory and to be transformed from one degree to another by the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, Fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as people who are grateful that we have seen the light. In Jesus' name, amen.